from Grace in Jasper, Tennessee. Thank you all for um, your love for us, your prayers for us, your support. Know that we pray for you all also. We are praying for Rachel. She was a friend of mine in high school, and we heard what was going on, so we as a church have been praying for her. So um, just know that you are being thought of, and we are grateful for your hearts and ministry in this community and even to us. So if you would, turn in your scriptures to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now, as you're turning there, let me catch you up to speed of where we are in this story. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. This is a big one. But leading up to the Ten Commandments is God rescuing his people. He's brought them now to the foot of Mount Sinai. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, God has descended in this cloud. There have been thunderings and lightnings. There's smoke. There's a trumpet blast that keeps getting louder and louder. It's a pretty awesome experience. And Yahweh, the Lord, is now calling his people into a covenant relationship with him. This covenant relationship is a requirement between Yahweh and his people that they will both be in this specific relationship for the betterment of one another, if you will. Because Yahweh does not need anything to make him better, but Israel absolutely does need Yahweh to make them better. In this covenant relationship, Yahweh has promised them, if you will keep my covenant, you will be to me a treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here now in Exodus 20, Yahweh begins to explain the terms and conditions that is required of Israel in terms of fulfilling this covenant. So with that in mind, will you please follow along as I read Exodus 20 out out loud? Uh, Would you all mind standing as I read the word of God? If you're able, thank you so much. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield your tool on it, you'll profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. All men are like grass and their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Will you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking humbly yet boldly for your spirit to illuminate your word to our hearts. I particularly ask that you would paint a brilliant portrait of your son with what I feel is a bristleless brush such as myself this morning. For his sake and his sake alone, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the United States House chamber, it's where the House of Representatives are, laws are made, they're discussed, they're wrestled over. It is also the place where the President of the United States gives his address, the State of the Union address. He stands in the House chambers. Now, if the President is addressing the legislators or fine citizens who are sitting in the gallery, behind him on the right and the left and going around all the upper wall of the lower level are 23 marble reliefs. What these reliefs are, so to his right on the front wall and the side wall and the back wall are the left profile of great lawmakers throughout history. Hammurabi, perhaps the oldest law code that we have that we've discovered, 1750 B.C., something like that. It's, it's really old law code. You've got uh, St. Louis. You have Pope Innocent III, a medieval pope. You have Thomas Jefferson, um, George Mason. There are 11 to the president's right, and there are 11 to his left, the right profile of them going all around, 22, and then directly behind the gallery, what the president will be looking at is one face that is not a profile to the right or left. It's the full face of Moses. Now, that's not to say, hey, the U.S. got it right. They're awesome. Way to go, USA. What it is to say is that the designers, the decorators of the house chamber recognize something that we've known for years. There's something very different about 
Yahweh's law that came through Moses. Even the world recognizes that this law is a good law. And when you obey this law, life flourishes. You see, the Mosaic law, Yahweh's law that comes through Moses, is very different. It stands above and against all the other laws, all the other law codes that have been given to humanity. This one is one, as our sister just prayed, gives justice to those that everybody writes off. It gives strength to the weak. The law code that comes through Yahweh is one that allows the voiceless to have a voice, the marginalized to be valued just like the rich and the powerful. You see, when God's good law is obeyed, life happens, life flourishes. And I absolutely want to leave that with you this morning. It was the same back then, it is the same now. God's good law ought to be obeyed. In fact, Because God's law is good, we must obey it. Now, there's a lot of ways from this text that we can unwrap. What does it look like? How is is God's law good? There are three main ways that I want to propose to you this morning. The first is this. God's good law is rooted in grace. God's good law is rooted in grace. Therefore, we must obey it. Now, before I tell you exactly how it's rooted in grace, I've got to give some technical kind of terms, but I think it's utterly fascinating. If you don't, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry, but I love this stuff right here. This this is the technical dynamic to this. So this type of uh, the, the Ten Commandments that come to us, in fact, nowhere in Scripture are they referred to as the Ten Commandments. They're actually called the Ten Words. These are the words that God has given to his people. Now, these words come in a very particular form. They show up in what's called a suzerain-vassal treaty. Back then, over there, these people would have understood the form in which they received it. It was very common. A suzerain-vassal treaty would be a suzerain is, is a king who's come in and conquered a land. He's now become the new people's king. And he says this, I will protect you. My army will fight for you. I will feed you. I'll let you stay in my land. All you owe me is your loyalty. That's it. This is the way that it works. There is a suzerain and then his vassals that now are loyal to him. Yahweh presents this in a very similar fashion. In a suzerain vassal treaty, there are certain elements. There's a preamble that says who the the different parties are in this relationship. There's a prologue how this relationship was formed, what the basis of the relationship is. And then there are terms and conditions. We will only get to those three elements today, very little. And and even with the terms and conditions, we're not going to focus necessarily individually on those. But then from Exodus 21 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, we see more uh, uh, more terms and conditions. And we will also see there are blessings and curses. There are blessings for obeying those terms and conditions, There are curses for disobeying those. That's the form of this suzerain-vassal treaty that dominates the way that Yahweh speaks to Israel here. Today, we see the preamble, the prologue, and some of the terms and conditions. So the preamble, who's involved in this? If you'll look at verse 2 with me ever so quickly. Right here, the first phrase, I am the Lord 
your God. We immediately see who the two parties are. And there, that's all there is, are two parties. It is the Lord, Yahweh, and your God. Who is the you in there? The your, it's the people who make up the nation of Israel, Israelites. These are the two parties. God is saying, I'm having a very distinct relationship with you, Yahweh, the people of, of Israel. Then what's the prologue? What's the basis of this relationship? And this is how we know that God's good law is rooted in grace. What's the next phrase? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The basis of their relationship is rescue. It's God's grace. You remember, Israel was in bondage in slavery in Egypt. Egypt was the world's superpower. Israel was a slave nation. If you remember their story, there was a systematic attempt on Egypt's behalf to get rid of Israel. They wanted to destroy them. They first started thinking, let's overwork them. Let's work them literally till they die. That didn't work. Let's get the midwives to start killing the infant boys. That didn't work. Now let's call it a a national mandate that any Egyptian who sees a newborn male must throw them into the Nile River. There is a systematic attempt on Egypt's behalf to exterminate Israel. They can't possibly free themselves. They are utterly sunk. In chapter 19, Yahweh says this to them, in fact. He says, here's what I did. I bore you up on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Yahweh does for Israel what they couldn't possibly do for themselves. You see, that's what we call grace. For some reason, Yahweh finds favor, they find favor in Yahweh's eyes. If you are honest with yourself, you will recognize your own sin patterns, your own sin tendencies, and you will say, I cannot possibly deliver myself from these. You need a power outside of yourself. In fact, you need the divine power of Yahweh alone. That's all you've got. It is utterly fascinating the way that we usually process life and the way that Yahweh actually does things. Notice that he didn't meet them in Egypt and say, listen, here are my 10 words, my 10 commandments. If you keep them, then I'll deliver you. That's not what he does. He delivers them first and then sets the terms and conditions. He delivers them first and then says, now obey me. You see, the obedience of God's people are, is always, always, always rooted in divine favor, in God taking the divine initiative, God showing grace first. We don't get the Ten Commandments before God rescues. We get the Ten Commandments after God rescues. Let me ask you this. When you look at the commands of God, do you see them as harsh Do you see them as something that keeps you from getting what you want? Do you see God's law as something that prevents you from serving yourself because it requires you to serve others first? Or do you see God's law rooted in the grace that it is? That's one of the first ways that we see God's law is good. It is rooted in grace. The second way that we get to see God's law as being good is, it is a declaration of love. Because God's good law is a declaration of love, 
We should obey it. I can't say it any clearer, but I'm going to try to. So here's the thing. Before we get into this declaration of love, I want to go back into some more technical things. Will you bear with me on this? The technical dynamics of how are we supposed to understand this? How do we divide these up? How do we understand what the the different laws mean? So let me begin by saying this. These actually are 10 statements that are blanket principles. Now that might scare some of you to think, whoa, 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 you're weakening the 10 commandments. No, no, not at all. Actually, what I'm trying to do is help us understand them in their context When Yahweh gave a big blanket statement, he basically was saying, whatever way you can think of to keep that commandment, to keep that way, that's the way life ought to happen. Let me simplify it a little bit this way. You remember when Jesus was asked what the two commandments, or what are the commandments, Jesus boiled them down to two, right? He said the first is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. See, those are two blanket umbrella statements in which all of the law fits into one of those two categories. By the way, if you look at this, you will see that that commands one through four are those vertical commandments. It's loving God with all that you are. Commandments five through 10 is loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, as you go through Exodus 21, all the way through Leviticus, Numbers, you'll see that there are certain individual laws that will be made that go underneath those big blanket statements, but by and large, they're just blanket statements. This is the way you ought to process life. A second thing you need to know about this, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself uh, an idol. The word you there, let's get some English grammar here, that's fun on a Sunday. English grammar This is second person, masculine, singular. You're like, that is no way. That is awesome. It really is. And here's why it's awesome. Yahweh is calling every individual Israelite into a covenant relationship with him. He's not leaving it up to Moses to keep the covenant for them. He's not leaving it to the elders or judges of Israel to keep the covenant for them. He's a personal God. Don't we actually embrace that quite deeply here in in our churches, that we think that God is a personal God that brings us a lot of comfort? It's always been that way. Yahweh was a personal God, calling every individual to keep the terms and conditions. But here's what else it means. Remember, over there back then, the way that they thought and processed, because it's in the masculine Even the women knew this is applying to me. And no woman sat there and said, you shall not commit adultery. Sweet, I can commit adultery with anybody that I want because I'm not a guy. They would have never thought that way. They're not looking for loopholes like we do. I've made a career on looking for loopholes. (laughs) But they didn't process it that way. And so as they're dividing this up, they see that it's, it's into two different categories. There's commands that, that talk about loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's commands that talk about loving my neighbor as myself. There's also another division that happens in here. There are things that God says don't do. In fact, there are eight of them here. Don't have any other gods besides me. Don't make a, a graven image. But there are actually two where he says, do this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
honor your father and your mother. And what we start to realize is it's not good enough with Yahweh to just not do the bad things. He calls us to also do the good things. Now, at this point in time, with all this technical talk, you ought to be feeling, at least Israel would have been, the weight of what is that God's really calling me into, the weight of these terms and conditions. I personally am on the hook with Yahweh. And it's not only that I can't do bad things, I am told to proactively go do good things. To perhaps bring it into our realms, even let's talk, we've talked about it this morning, even with Thanksgiving, the prayers, by the way, your prayers are magnificent. I utterly love them. The session here and the people, the makeup, you all have done an amazing job of teaching the kingdom of God prayers. So we're not just talking about, hey, heal so-and-so, which is necessary. We're talking about an entire ethos that says we have eyes to look for those who can't help themselves. I love that. Praise the Lord for that. In this, it is not enough just to say, hey, I'm not mean to the guy out there whose horn is blaring. What it is saying is I'm actively trying to go help them. It's a both and situation. The weight of what Yahweh is calling these people into is overwhelming to them. It ought to be overwhelming to you. And it is only when you feel the weight of what Yahweh is calling you into can you truly recognize the declaration of love that this is. That you can truly see the heart of the one who gives the law. Yahweh is about to do something that the gods of the ancient Near East would have never done. He's about to be vulnerable. (laughs) He's about to share his heart. In fact, he says it very explicitly in verse 5. The Lord your God... I am a jealous God. I want you to think of the Ten Commandments as a, a vow that a husband would ask his wife to make for him. Those of you who are married understand vows. You made vows whenever you got married. I will love you in sickness and in health, richer, for, richer and poor, uh, life and in death. I mean, these are, we are together. I am your man. I am your woman forever. This is what Yahweh as a husband, is asking of his bride. Israel is constantly, and then in the New Testament, the church uh, uh, being engrafted in in Israel are called God's bride all the time. Think of it this way. It doesn't seem so harsh or so strange when you think of Yahweh speaking to his bride saying, "I, I don't want you to have any other guys that you like like me. How insane would it be for a husband to say, you got my permission to cheat on me. Go for it. If another guy's going to satisfy you, make you happy, enjoy. That's crazy talk. Yahweh is here saying, don't steal. Because what that does in our relationship is it, it lets me know you don't think I'm providing well enough for you. And I live my life to provide for you. It's my delight and joy to give you what you need No husband says to his wife, hey, you know what? If you see something that somebody else has, I'm okay with you doing whatever you got to do to get that because I can't provide it for you. Nobody says that. So when Yahweh says don't covet, what he's saying is my heart is one that is vulnerable for my wife saying when you seek after something that somebody else has, it makes me feel, if 
I could say it this way, it makes me feel like you don't think I have provided well enough for you. You see, even in the Ten Commandments, it's a declaration of love, Yahweh being vulnerable. Does that help you process these Ten Commandments? Does it help you see this as the very heart of God and no longer harsh conditions that you just simply can't live up to? You see, Yahweh's law, God's law is good. And it is good because we see it as a declaration of love. Now, there's a third category, a third area where we see God's good law, and it is this. It is encased in mercy. Because God's good law is encased in mercy, we must obey it. Here's how it's encased in mercy. I I love these dynamics. First of all, in, in verse 19, the people of Israel are terrified, they're trembling, they're afraid, and they say, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us because we're going to die. God's voice is loud, really loud. I mean, like, it's, we talk about, you know, it's that gentle whisper in your heart. That's not what they experienced. They experienced God talking at volume 12, and it was terrifying. He was probably not quite as monotone. A little bit more Hebrew than that. But <laughs> Yahweh is speaking to them and it's terrifying. And make no mistake about it. Yahweh himself says to Moses, you know, you yourselves have seen that I talked to you from heaven. Verse 1 says, God spoke all of these things. God spoke the Ten Commandments. These laws are not like anything anybody else has ever received because they don't come from a human agent. They come from Yahweh himself spoken to them. But here's the first mercy we see. They say, please don't speak to us anymore, Yahweh. And from that point on, Yahweh doesn't. He's kind. They absolutely deserve that mercy. I mean, they do deserve that loud voice, but what he gives them is mercy that they don't deserve. And he says, you know what, if it terrifies you, I'm not going to keep making you live in this state of terror. I will speak through Moses from here on out. That's a severe mercy that he gives to them. I think it's beautiful, but not quite as beautiful as this other one. And to me, it was utterly shocking when my friend pointed it out to me. Here's the mercy that you see. Yahweh has now given the Ten Commandments, these ten words. In chapter 19, before these terms and conditions came out, Israel said, we'll do it, whatever you say. Man, to be Yahweh's treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, we want that. We want to be the best of all nations, more treasured than any other nation on the face of the earth. We'll do it. Yahweh gives them this weighty Ten Commandments. And then what does he do immediately after? You'll find the answer in verse 24. Yahweh tells Moses to tell the people, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. Just real quick, why would Yahweh provide a means of sacrifice if his people are being called to obey him perfectly? Built into this system, it presupposes failure. Yahweh knows the people aren't going to keep these Ten Commandments And the first thing he does is he provides sacrifice to atone for breaking his covenant. 
He knows they're going to be covenant breakers. And he provides atonement, sacrifice, burnt offerings, peace offerings to be in a right relationship with him. How merciful can you get? This is stunning. It is utterly, absolutely breathtaking what Yahweh has done here. The amount of mercy he has encased his good law in. He expects you to fail and he's provided the atonement for that so you can be made right with him again. How magnificent. And you know what I find more magnificent in a bad way, shocking? Is that I've just hopefully unfolded for you. You've seen God's grace. You've seen his love. You've seen his mercy. The pages right here specifically say they are terrified of him. The fear of the Lord is there. And the fear of the Lord, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, still doesn't stop Israel from committing sin. It wasn't enough. Simply wasn't enough. In fact, Moses is up on the mountain. He leaves right here. It says, uh, the people were far off. Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's now about to get the rest of the terms and conditions. He's now about to get the blessings and the curses. While he's up there, he's been gone a little too long. And his brother Aaron and the Israelites are going, what's happening? Maybe we need to make a golden calf. Which is specifically what it says, don't make for yourself a God of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves a God of gold. They didn't, Moses hasn't even finished getting all of the terms and conditions, and they're breaking God's covenant. The fear of Yahweh, his love, his grace, and his mercy are not enough to keep them from sinning. Let's close in prayer. No, you're like, what kind of a message is that? Who does that? They're sunk, and you are too. You and I are covenant breakers just like them, and we don't even wait for half a second before we start breaking God's commands. And so, in the fullness of time, Yahweh says, I'll take on flesh. I will come down and become the covenant keeper that you can't possibly be yourselves. You see, Yahweh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, comes down to earth in this utter declaration of love. What's one of our favorite Bible verses? John 3, 16. God loved the world in this way. (laughs) He gave his son. You see, in Moses, he gave us the law, an amazingly good law. It's a grace. But in Christ, he gave us himself because he knows we can't keep the law. And he says, I'll do it for you. How good a news is that? I will do it for you. This great declaration of love. And when did he do it? You want to hear God's grace poured out in scriptures? While we were still sinners, while we were still covenant breakers, we are considered by God covenant breakers. Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. We don't deserve anything good. We're covenant breakers. Intentionally, it doesn't take us very long to go our own way. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. What an amazing statement of divine initiative coming to us to rescue us from sin and the bondage and slavery that we are in sin. And it's not only grace and love. Where do we see his mercy? The fact that Christ died for us. He pays the penalty that we can't possibly pay. You owe it to God. You owe God your very life. And you can't pay it. And God says, I got this too. I've lived perfectly and I've died the death you absolutely deserve. I have done it 
all. This is the covenant that you have failed to keep, but God himself has kept on your behalf. How can we not live lives of obedience to a great God who does this for us? If you've seen the movie version of The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes has washed up on shore from escaping from prison only to fall into the hands of some pirates. The pirates have a dilemma on their hands. One of their own, Jacopo, has stolen things. And so the captain of the pirate ship says, Edmond Dantes, well, I don't think he calls him by that name, he says, you may be the answer to our dilemma here. Jacopo's friends want me to show mercy to him, but if I show mercy to him, then they think that I'm weak and there'll be a mutiny on my ship. There are others who want to see sport, and so they want me to kill him, and it'd be fun for them to watch. You, actually, Edmond Dantes, are the answer to my dilemma because I can make you all fight to the death. My men get sport. If Jacopo beats you, which he absolutely should, then I've shown him mercy. He's earned his way back onto my ship. It's a win-win situation. Dantes has... No, no recourse. He has nothing to say. So they give him a weapon, give Jacobo a weapon. They begin this knife fight, and it's a matter of seconds before Dantes disarms him and straddles him, puts the knife up to Jacobo's throat and says to the captain, I'm not going to kill Jacopo. He said, the men who wanted to see sport have gotten that. The men who wanted to see mercy have seen mercy shown to Jacopo. And now you, captain, have gotten two sailors to be on your ship. It's a win-win-win situation. Captain says, that sounds great. Before Dantes helps Jacopo off the ground, Jacopo grabs him by what is left of his shirt, pulls him close to his face, and he says, I am your man forever. When Jacopo realizes that his life has been spared, mercy has been shown, it calls him into a life of servitude, grateful servitude. Brothers and sisters, I present to you a great God who's given his life for you in Jesus Christ. Will you be Yahweh's servant forever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for what you've done on our behalf. We are grateful for the fact that you have lived what we couldn't possibly do. You have died in a manner that we couldn't possibly bear. And in you we have life and have it abundantly, utterly undeserving. May we live lives of utter servitude to you. Not so that we will get your grace, but because we've already received it. Not so that we will get your love, but because we've already received it. In the name of Christ Jesus, our conquering and reigning King, we pray. Amen.